you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. So before I get to the topic for today's episode, the last one on my ancestor John Frankford needs to be updated a little bit. I had written to Eastern State for more information on John, but I hadn't heard back in time before the episode came out. Shortly after it did, though, I did hear back, and some of the timeline needs updating a little bit as a result. When I was putting the episode together, I was confused by some statements that Warden Cassidy made indicating that John had been at Eastern State four times, given that I only had information relating to two. Well, it turns out that he was in four times. After he escaped jail in Lancaster in September of 1863, I said that he joined the army in Maryland, serving until 1866. This information, as well as data as to the regiment and his having been injured in the war, was gotten off papers indicating that his wife Anna was receiving military benefits relating to John's injury. However, I now wonder whether, in addition to everything else, he was scamming the army, because in December of 1863, he was arrested in Delaware County for, what else, larceny and receiving stolen goods, and was sent to Eastern State. He was released from there in June of 1866, which puts him in prison at the time that he was supposedly serving in the military. Moreover, by September of 1866, he was arrested again, this time in Harrisburg. Once more, the charge was larceny, and again, he was sent to Eastern State. He was released on March 4, 1868, the day that I had down as the day that he was recaptured after his escape five years before. It's likely that after his release from Eastern State, he was simply shipped back to Lancaster. Here he escapes in the company of Samuel Hambright the next year, and then the rest of the episode plays out as written. I also have a bit of an announcement. I'm not sure when it'll take effect, but at some point I'll probably need to be switching over to primarily true crime stories. There was really only a few unexplained tales I wanted to dive into, as most of the others that I really find interesting have been covered pretty well by other podcasts. There's still a few I want to dig into, so the changeover won't be happening immediately or anything. I have a list made up of future stories I want to look into, and I notice that there are far more crimes on that list than anything else. So, just keep that in mind. Now, on to today's topic. When it came out for PS3, I really became a fan of the game Alien Noir. I'm a big fan of atmosphere and story in a game, honestly, above anything else. 
And this one was atmospheric as hell to me. I really dig the time period, and it was basically a crime story, which interests me, obviously. Being familiar with true crime stories, I noticed as I played that almost all of the homicide cases were based on actual murders which took place in 1947. Later on, I came to find out that several of the others in the game were also based on real events. So, those cases are what I want to go into today. I'm not covering the homicide cases in this episode, though. I'm not quite sure how I want to cover them. They're all, they were often linked in the press, and rather predictably, since they took place in 1947, to the Black Dahlia. I'll go more into those links in the episode or episodes covering these crimes. But anyway, in the game, you start as a patrol officer, and the patrol cases double as a sort of tutorial to get used to controls of the game. The tutorial section done, you're moved up to a traffic detective, and the very first case you work is one of those based on an actual case discovered exactly a month after the body of Elizabeth Short was found. Eugene Hamilton White was born on February 10, 1916, to Richmond and Myrtle White, a native of Elmira, New York. He was an intelligent boy, developing an interest in aviation. When he graduated high school, he enrolled in the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. A prospective engineer, while there he met Elizabeth Amelia Welch, a native of, Yip of Ypsilanti, Michigan. Eugene and Elizabeth were married on May 30, 1942. As an aviation engineer, Eugene White's skills were in demand during World War II. Where exactly the Whites were during those years is unclear, though going by later statements by Eugene, it seems to have been on the East Coast. By 1947, though, the war had ended, and the couple was living with her two children in the Los Angeles suburb of Woodland Hills. Eugene was production manager at an aircraft parts factory in Long Beach. On Valentine's Day 1947, Elizabeth became concerned when Eugene didn't come home from work. On the night of February 15th, at about 10.15, a railroad employee named Earl Wilkie found a car abandoned in the yards he was employed at at Long Beach Avenue and East 51st Street. He was positive it hadn't been there the last time he made his rounds past the spot an hour before. He called the police, who ran the plates, and found that the car belonged to Eugene White, who had by now been missing, been reported missing by his wife. When Detectives R.R. Coppage, Robert Douglas, and M.F. Bustamani got to the yards, they found signs of foul play. In an almost disturbing contrast, they found Valentine's Day gifts for Elizabeth lying in a car whose driver's seat window had been smashed. Blood stained the seats and dashboard. On the back seat of the car lay a heavy iron bar, one end wrapped in a handkerchief and likewise stained with blood. Detectives conjectured that Eugene White had been murdered by a robber, and with no body in sight, the running theory was that perhaps his body had been thrown onto the train, which had since departed the rail yard. But one particularly nagging question presented itself. Why would the killer throw the weapon in the back seat of the car, rather than simply discard it on the ground outside, as most killers probably would have done? Elizabeth White told the detectives that her husband had always been conscientious and attentive, that he had always returned home from work promptly and rarely left the house and when he did, he very rarely stayed out late. But he had received a phone call a few weeks before from somebody that he knew back in New York, and had seemed rather nervous since then. But other than that, she could really offer no clues, and try though they might, 
The detectives never received any until about two weeks later. On February 26, Elizabeth White received a phone call. She quickly notified the police of the call, for it had been from Eugene. He was in Seattle, staying with a friend named Jay Stevens. Stevens's wife had argued with the engineer, telling him that he needed to get in touch with his wife and let her know what was going on. The detectives made it to Washington as quickly as possible to pick up the presumed murder victim, who told them that he was, he was stressed from overwork. He said for years it had been, quote, 14 hours work a day with no vacation. He said he had gashed open his hand with a razor blade to try to convincingly bloody up his car. He got an iron crowbar, wrapped it so his fingerprints wouldn't get on it, and broke out the windows of his car. He expressed a belief that, if Mrs. Stevens hadn't convinced him to call his wife, he never would have been found. Once he and the detectives were back in Los Angeles, Eugene expounded on the reasons for his rash act. He reiterated that the root cause was anxiety and an insecurity about his job in a post-war economy. As he said, quote, Had I the privilege of fighting at Normandy or New Guinea along with other lads of my age, instead of being actively engaged in the Battle of Washington with its foxholes along the Potomac, or the four-year siege of Hagerstown, Maryland, I would not be as on the verge of a crack-up as I am now. These anxieties and insecurities were compounded by the threatening phone calls from New York he had received relating to something he had supposedly witnessed back during Prohibition. He complained that an inability to find supplies he needed to remodel his house added to these. Later, though, he came forward and admitted that the entire story about the threatening phone calls was a fabrication and that he had lied about ever receiving them. With one of the major factors in that fake death now made irrelevant, one wonders whether it was truly anxiety about his job that caused a sort of mental break. Though he denied his wife had anything to do with the reasons he left, the simple fact that he chose to disappear on Valentine's Day, I think at least partially suggests his marriage was an issue in some way. It also was never brought up in the media, but I also note that his 31st birthday had passed only shortly before. Eugene and Elizabeth White remained apart for a while after his return, Elizabeth taking the children with her and returning to Michigan while Eugene stayed in Los Angeles. He never received any charges for faking his death. And with the story at least somewhat resolved, the couple disappeared from the press, for a while at least. But in August, Eugene White again appeared in the newspapers. On August 3rd, his home at 22034 Providentia Street in Woodland Hills burned with Eugene telling firefighters that some paint thinner had caught fire. Later, though, he admitted to arson investigators L.L. Bryce and R. Landgraf that he had set the blaze, saying that the impetus this time was a home inspector's telling him that a roof on an addition he had built onto the house needed to be a few inches higher. The addition was being built prior to the upcoming return of Elizabeth and the children from Michigan. White said that the inspector's orders had been a shock to him, and that the home had been nothing but, quote, a jinx to us all along. I couldn't think of anything else to do but get rid of the whole house, he said. He also said he regretted his actions soon after starting the blaze and tried to, to extinguish the flames. On August 8th, he went to court charged with arson and attempting to defraud insurance. Only the arson charge stuck, however, and on this charge, he was to stand trial on August 25th. But before he went on trial, a superior court judge named Edward Brand 
said that he wanted White to be examined by Dr. Marcus Crahan, psychiatrist at the Los Angeles County Jail. Crahan came back on September 5th, stating that Eugene White was sane in his opinion, and that the trial could proceed. It was rescheduled for October 6th. On October 8th, after deliberating for three hours, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty, and Eugene White was freed. And with this verdict, and the return of Elizabeth from Michigan, the couple reunited and drops out of the public eye. They moved to Long Beach, and later to Van Nuys. Eugene stayed on at the aircraft parts factory he had been working at in 1947 for a while, eventually quitting and taking a job with the railroad sometime after 1950. He and Elizabeth had two more children. Elizabeth died in 1980 and Eugene in 1995. His obituary makes no mention of the events of 1947. The game version of the Eugene White case played out pretty much as the actual one did. The later investigation into White's burning of his house isn't present, and there is an implication of an affair which never seems to have come up in actuality. But the next one takes some liberties with the actual case on which it is based. Shortly before midnight on August 10, 1944, J.D. Chitwood, who had moved to California from Arkansas a few years before along with his wife Helen, was walking home from work. He worked at the Alcoa Aluminum Plant in Torrance, and was walking on Western Avenue near 203rd Street. This section of Western Avenue had no sidewalk, forcing pedestrians to walk on the roadway. It was here that Chitwood was struck and killed by an automobile driven by John W. Tetley. An inquest into the death was held at the Ingracia Avenue Mortuary in Torrance. The coroner presented his findings that the cause of death had been from a punctured lung caused by the impact. A bullet was also found in Chitwood's gut, which Helen said had been received in a robbery in Arkansas back before the couple left. The death was deemed accidental. It seemed like an open and shut case. On January 21, 1947, just six days after the discovery of Elizabeth Short's remains, Torrance police received a phone call from a man calling himself Mr. Shug. He said that his wife had told him that she previously had murdered her ex-husband, and threatened to do the same to him. Detectives Ralph Wayne and Fred Bernard went to the address given by the caller, 888 1⁄2 Hamilton Avenue in San Pedro, and found that the informant was a Roland T. Shug. His wife was the former Helen Shitwood. Helen, who was obviously drunk, confessed to the police, saying that she and her ex-husband had been in the midst of an argument. She stabbed him, and his falling body was struck by Tetley's car. She also claimed that she had buried the knife with which she had stabbed her husband, and later she went back and dug it up and mailed it to his family in Fort Smith, Arkansas. She was brought into the station, although Wayant and Bernard doubted her story. Chief John Stroh agreed, but put Helen in jail until things could be straightened out. In fact, by later that same day, Helen had begun to sober up and was backtracking on the murder story saying that, that she and Shug had gotten into an argument while drinking. She made up the story of the murder to frighten him. The original reports on Shitwood's death were reviewed, and although the cause of death had been a punctured lung, the coroner told them that Chitwood had had several of his ribs broken in the collision, and it had been quite obvious the puncture resulted from one of the splintered bones, and in any case, it was definitely not from a knife. The next bit proved even more that police had been right to doubt the confession. As according to initial responders and John Tetley, 
Helen hadn't even been present at the time Chitwood was struck. She couldn't very well have stabbed the man if she was two blocks away at home. Helen was released. Both she and J.D. are buried in Arkansas. The death of J.D. Chitwood had another effect. It finally spurred the Torrance City Council to have sidewalks laid down on that section of Western Avenue. The game's version of this story is a more clearly defined case of murder. In this case, the wife, the wife did kill the husband, as opposed to merely confessing when drunk that she had. The third one I'm dealing with here is a case that comes near the end of the game. In this instance, the majority of the plot is original, and only the opening sections are based on reality. On the morning of Thursday, February 20th, 1947, 12-year-old Alfred Lee Carter was riding his bicycle in a residential and commercial neighborhood just south of downtown Los Angeles. He had a paper route here and was collecting money from his subscribers. At about 9.45 a.m., when he was on East 12th Street, the sky rapidly darkened, there was a tremendous noise, and then a large pipe came hurling through the air over a four-story building and landing directly on top of the boy. Several blocks to the north, City Councilman J. Wynn Austin was standing near the window in his office at City Hall when he likewise heard the tremendous roar. I felt the shock and heard the window rattle, and I stood up and looked out just as a cloud of smoke mushroomed into the air. It rose up and hovered there a moment. The streets were clogged as some people, gripped by fear and panic, made their way away from the area, and first responders came in to render aid. Arriving on scene, it was found that fully half a block bounded by East 14th Street, Stanford Avenue, Paloma Street, and East Pico Boulevard had been almost completely blown to smithereens, many of the outlying buildings still heavily damaged. The epicenter of the blast had been the O'Connor Electroplating Plant at 926 East Pico Boulevard, and moreover was traced to a large chemical vat. In all, 15 would be killed, over 200 injured, and 500 made homeless. Alfred Carter, the boy crushed by the flying pipe, would be the first fatality located that day. In addition to these statistics, two were missing. They were 35-year-old Robert McGee, the chief chemist of the plant, and his assistant, 21-year-old Japanese-American Alice Iba. It seems that almost from the beginning, no real hope was held out of finding the two. They had likely been almost completely vaporized by the massive explosion. The blast site of the O'Connor plant proved to be the first accident site on the West Coast covered by live television reports. The Salvation Army set up mobile kitchens to feed those rendered homeless by the accident. And there proved to be some rather unusual tales of injury associated with the blast. 31-year-old George Cadell a delivery driver who made his way towards the blast to render aid if possible. His legs were burnt badly when he stepped from his delivery van directly into a vat of acid displaced by the blast. Olive Wafer, a 73-year-old woman injured by falling debris in her home, who ironically had just arrived home after being in the hospital. It was feared that her injuries would prove fatal, but that wasn't the case. She didn't die until the 1960s. Strangest of all was 21-year-old Charles Batye, who, who worked at a dairy several blocks away. When the O'Connor explosion took place, some pieces of shrapnel were blown into the dairy and thrown on top of a machine. Charles ended up being injured by the blast 12 hours after the blast, 
when he turned on the machine and the shrapnel hit him. The press was looking for someone to blame, and once they caught wind of some government contracts held by the plant, they had their scapegoat. Company chairman Robert J. O'Connor denied the accusations, though. We are not doing secret war work. The work that was being done for the government was work relative to chairs and Davenports for the Quartermaster Corps, which were manufactured by the Tim Manufacturing Company. We were plating the aluminum parts. But soon after the blast, Fire Prevention Chief Earl Richardson said that he felt it would be the company's usage of perchloric acid, a notoriously volatile compound that needs to be kept refrigerated at nearly all times lest it be rendered explosive, that was to blame. A mass inquest was to be held on March 11th, the coroner choosing to postpone it until then so as to allow at least some of the injured to be released from the hospital. The inquest focused on a few people in particular, Robert McGee, Alice Eba, and Fred Bowyer. Through the testimony of her sister, it was learned that Eba was unqualified for the job that she held. She had never been trained in chemistry and began work at the plant only six weeks before as a floor worker. Within a few weeks of starting, she became McGee's assistant and was often given the job of mixing chemicals. Fred Bowyer, floor supervisor at the plant, said that a plastic rack was lowered into the vat authorities identified as the epicenter at about 8.40 a.m. This vat contained a mixture of perchloric acid and acetic anhydride. Passing by the vat on his rounds around the plant, he noticed that the motor of the refrigeration unit was running hot and told Dr. McGee it should probably be shut down for a bit. McGee answered in the affirmative. Given this testimony, the course of the inquest began to focus on McGee. Robert O'Connor said that he had been told McGee was a graduate of Caltech. However, several of the authorities doubted this. If he were an educated chemist, as was claimed, surely he would have known better than to allow Fred Bowyer to shut off the refrigeration, particularly when the perchloric acid was agitated by the electroplating process. Then, they said, the fact that he had an unqualified floor worker made his assistant and entrusted her with a delicate work of chemical mixture, well, this was also reckless. When McGee's father-in-law, J.P. Schaefer of Long Beach, said that he was told that his nephew had gone to Caltech but couldn't directly confirm that he in fact had, the next step was clearly to contact the laboratory. And when they confirmed that no Robert McGee, Robert McGee had ever been enrolled there as a full-time student, but had completed two three-week night courses, the verdict was reached. Neither O'Connor Electroplating, Fred Bowyer, or Alice Eba were found responsible. The full responsibility rested with Robert McGee, a high school graduate from Ohio mildly familiar with chemistry. It might have been Fred Bowyer's act that directly led to the explosion, but the jury ruled that McGee was more responsible. After all, Fred Bowyer was merely a floor supervisor, and McGee should have known not to let Bowyer shut the motor off. And if he had indeed been a Caltech graduate, as he claimed, he would have known better, and this whole mess might have been avoided. Like the J.D. Chitwood case, though, the O'Connor electroplating accident did have a lasting effect. A bill was passed regulating more stringently the use of perchloric acid and the other chemicals present. Local fire departments must be notified of their use. And that's the end of this episode. 
As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Google Map available, marked with the locations of various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.